From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. If you've flown lately, you might have said a prayer or two before takeoff because the news about flying hasn't been good lately. There have been problems with airline maintenance. A jet's door flew open in January, tearing the shirt off a boy sitting by the door. There have been design issues with one of the most popular planes, the Boeing 737 MAX. Then about every flight you take is delayed, sometimes canceled, Passengers are nickel and dime for amenities, and there's always some scary story of unruly passengers and safety. Last year, the New York Times reported 46 close calls with commercial flights in July alone and runway incursions, which means the space between aircraft on a runway is incorrect, are 25% higher than a decade ago. And in a city like Las Vegas that relies on airline passengers, it's one of the biggest scares is a shortage of pilots. The country needs about 17,000 pilots, and that's going to increase to 24,000 in a couple of years. How do we get here? How do we get more people interested in the job and then trained for the job? We're going to get into that with our guests, and I'm going to start with Ron Kelly. He's the CEO of the Las Vegas Flight Academy. He's also the founder of the Minority Pilot Advancement Foundation. Ron, welcome to State of Nevada. Well, thanks for having me. That's great to have you here, Ron. So the heart of what we're talking about today is the pilot shortage. It's pretty well known, but what's caused it? Well, it, it's it's like a perfect storm. So uh, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, we already had a shortage of pilots. So a lot of people don't know that. And the reality is that the airlines, in trying to save money, they got a lot of their pilots to take early retirement. And, you know, so then we come back after the pandemic and people start flying again. Uh, the shortage that was already existed just got multiplied. So with as time goes on, we just really have not been able to catch up with, you know, the demand for uh, flying. I mean, if you think about it today, uh, we are, are, I believe, we're somewhere like 10 percent above pre-pandemic flight levels. So a lot of people are traveling a lot of people are getting out there, and the reality is all of those problems that you brought up regarding flights being canceled, delayed, or a combination of bad weather, but really more not enough crews um, and crews timing out on the on the tarmac and causing more problems out there. But the bottom line is we need a lot more pilots. Yeah, yeah. I wonder also, and we're going to get into this a little bit later with a pilot who is a uh, a union board member, but I wonder about the pay scale. You know, I've read that pay has not been as high as it was years ago, that the average for a commercial pilot is just over 100000 For an airline pilot, about 200000 That's all from the Internet, so so really, who knows? But is that accurate from what you know? Well, the reality is that the airlines have stepped up. Um, they pretty much every airline has given some major increases, uh, one of the beauties of why we're encouraging more people to get involved in aviation is that, you know, even though it's going to cost you about $100,000, $120,000 to get up from what we call zero to hero. In other words, you've never flown to getting the job as a second officer on a commuter line. Uh, you know, again, they're giving you that money as a bonus when you sign. So, I, I disagree with the comment that they're paying less. Uh, the pay has increased. Okay. One of my good friends who I started flying with many years ago, I uh, just retired from uh, Southwest Airlines. 
at over $450,000 was his pay plus uh, profit share and benefits. So I, uh, the reality is that that average income is really taking in the lowest beginning guys, but the real average is well north of 200,000. In fact, I think it's getting close to three now. Okay. And you're also the founder again of the Minority Pilot Advancement Foundation. <laughs> Why did you create that? Well, I, 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 I was blessed. Um, you know, I started flying when I was 14 years old. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. That's the only thing I wanted to do. And I, I think that a lot of people, particularly minorities and women, uh, are not even aware that this is a possibility for them. And there's one thing that we know, and I'm sure John will agree, is that pilots are, they, they are people, it's like either you love it or it's just a way to get from point to A to B. And the reality is that if you love it, you will do anything and learn anything you need to know to become a, an effective and well, uh, good pilot. You know, again, there are some, some uh, people that won't make it, but a lot of people who really have the love and desire for it will do what they need to do. The reality is, is that pilots are, are a different breed. And um, it is something that, you know, these kids don't understand that instead of going to college, they can go through a program, which is basically like a trade school, which will teach them everything they need to know. But unlike college, you go out and spend, you know, anywhere from a quarter million dollars and up for a degree to get a job that only pays you like 80 grand. You can go to spend 150000 100 to $150,000 and come and go and become a pilot where the average income now is north of $200,000 a year. So I think the value proposition uh, that college used to offer, I don't think is there as much anymore, mm -hmm. which is why we're trying to encourage more people to consider doing something other than the traditional college route and becoming something like a pilot or AMP, uh, a mechanic or a welder or other things. There are, there are better options out there and people just don't realize that. Yeah, and fl flights I've taken, I haven't seen a lot of people of color as uh, captains and pilots. Uh, is it difficult to encourage or to get uh, people of color to, to want to get into this? No, you know, again, I, uh, I have to go back to people just don't realize it's a possibility. I was blessed, as I started to say, my father was an engineer. Uh, he, he designed the uh, antennas for the Apollo program. Wow. And, you know, he did okay. So he sent me, when he found out that I had a desire or an interest in it, he allowed me to go to a, a camp when I was 12 cool. out in the Mojave Desert where we just flew all day. And, you know, we stayed in this little hotel out in the middle of nowhere, which today you couldn't do it because you couldn't get insurance for it, which <laughs> unfortunately that's sad. But the reality is, is that I was exposed and realized that it was something I could do, whereas most minorities and most women, most people in the inner city really don't know that that's a possibility for them. So what does it take to get or to advance minority pilots? I mean, is there something more you have to do or to tell them, to encourage them to get into this? What we're doing is we're going into schools and talking to kids, you know, junior high to high school. And uh, one of the best ones, I went to Locke High School, which is right under the flight path for LAX. And in talking to these kids who watch these planes fly over their heads every day, you know, when I told them that this was something that they could actually do, you could see some kids, I mean, tears in their eyes going, 
you know, I'd always wanted to do that. You know, it's like, I just didn't think I could. Your foundation has said it's going to start bringing 600 new minority and female pilots per year into the travel industry. How, how do you plan to reach that goal? Well, the goal is that we want to, there's, there's two parts of it. Number one is the original goal is to raise enough money that was perpetually self-funding. Mm-hmm. So we could pay for these kids to go through all the training so they wouldn't have the burden of dollars. Because no matter how we slice it, you still need money to get from A to B. And so if we can provide the money for them so that they can don't have to worry about that, then they can go ahead and become pilots. And, and when we're talking to these kids, we're also talking about giving back. And if we can get them to donate some of that money back, the signing bonus back to the foundation, that will help us to keep bringing in more kids. You know, again, if anybody's interested in helping us, we're, you just go to www.minoritypilot.org and uh, feel free to donate. But the goal is, is to take the biggest bar- barrier out of the way, and that is money. You also, in 2020, established the Las Vegas Flight Academy. There are about a dozen other flight schools within the Vegas Valley. Why did you decide to to start another one? So we are, we're not like most flight schools. What we do is full motion flight simulation. Uh, we're the end of the road for these kids. This is where people come to get their initial type rating. So if you're flying any aircraft over 12,500 pounds, you need a specific license for it. If you're flying for uh, Southwest or Mentham or any other airlines out there, you will need to go to a school like mine to get your initial type rating. This is a, a full motion flight simulator. You go into what we call the box and in the back of it is the instructor station where they'll throw everything at you like, you know, fires, hydraulic failures, wind shears, bad weather. And, you know, so that these airline pilots really know and are prepared for the worst case scenario. And the sim, then you move forward in the sim in the box and you're in the actual cockpit of the actual aircraft. We currently have two 737-800s and one 737-300 or we call classic. And again, if you were flying for Southwest, for instance, or actually Sun Country Airlines, one of our clients, you would come into us, you would get your initial type rating, which will take you about 30 days where you're learning every system in the aircraft, how everything works. And then you're going to spend a lot of time when things are going wrong, everything you can imagine. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I love to say to people is that, you know, I've been flying for over 50 years and I really... You know, I know what the pilots are doing up there, and I know how good they are. But I think the average person, when they get on an airliner, they're in essence taking a bit of a leap of faith that, you know, the guys up front really do know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm here to tell you because of what we do, they absolutely know what they're doing. They've practiced every worst-case scenario you can imagine a hundred times. And not only do they have to get their initial type rating from us, but once they have a type rating to remain current, they have to come back to us twice a year to do additional training. So again, for all your listeners, trust me when I say these guys know exactly what they're doing. And when we bring more minorities and women into the into the industry, they will go through the same grueling training to make sure that they are up to the task to becoming an airline pilot that can safely fly you from point A to point B. You know, your flight academy... It's pretty new. About how many people are you graduating from it? 
So actually, um, I uh, own the building for, so I built it in about 2005 and Pan Am International Flight Academy was our tenant and had been there for 17 years. And I basically just bought out all their assets. So, you know, our, as a whole, we've done hundreds, if not thousands of, of clients throughout the years. Okay. And, and you know, you, you get, the, like you said, they go through this, they get this training. Airlines, it sounds like require between 1,000 and 1,500 flight hours before hiring somebody. And, and I really think, well, I know the flying public wants pilots that are highly trained, which you stated, but it takes a long time to get those hours. Is there, I wonder if there's any movement to try to reduce those hours of flight time. The FAs, uh, sorry, the airlines have been trying to push for that for years because it, the reality is, is that the second officers who they're trying to bring in at lower hours um, will will gain a lot of training and, and a lot more time in the aircraft before they're ever moved up to a captain. So again, you know, the, the flying public should know that the hours required um, that the airlines are pushing for is not trying to just cut a corner to save, to get more pilots in there quickly. Um, there is a belief, and I'm, like I said, I've been flying for 50 years, and, and I, I know, uh, you know, the level at which people are when they go into this, and that 750 hours versus 1,500 hours, yeah, there's a lot more training, a lot more lessons to be learned, but they won't be able to become a captain until they're at least 1,500, but realistically, it's probably way more than that. So the training that they're going to get flying actually with a, a really well-groomed captain will be more than adequate for them to move up. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of time and all this training. Give me an estimate. Let's say I went to a flight academy, no experience, never touched the, you know uh, anything within a cockpit of an airplane, and I want to become an airline pilot. About how much would that cost me? Well, it's getting, like I said, it's cost you around a hundred to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, depending on where you go, and you know the time it'll take you to get all the way up to the, the typical way you go is that you become a private pilot, then you get your multi-engine commercial instrument rating, and then you're now become a CFI. That's the way most pilots are doing it today. It's most people think most of our pilots come out of the military. That's absolutely not true, not anymore. Uh, most of them come in through the, the ranks, as I just described. And, you know, for them, once they become a CFI, they're going to start getting paid to train other pilots. And as you know, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Mm -hmm. So they'll spend another probably year and a half, maybe even as much as two years building up to that 1500 hour, the, the platform in which they can start moving up to become a, a second officer on an airliner. You know, in Las Vegas, Rancho High School has this Rancho Academy of Aviation where teens go, they begin learning some aviation skills. Do those type of programs make a difference in the length of time it takes to become a pilot? Yeah, I think so. I, I You know, anything you can do to teach, to having kids start learning about, you know, the physics of flying, about weather. And by the way, they're coming to our grand opening this Saturday. Uh, we, we are trying to get more of their kids involved, uh, doing some programs, getting them in the sim so they can experience what they're headed towards to see if they really love it. And, uh, you know, again, minoritypilot.org is, is a group that is trying to bring more schools like that to Las Vegas and, and quite frankly, other schools. 
you know, you know, driverless vehicles are becoming a thing. It's taken a long time for that to really become a reality. The military pilots drones remotely. AI is coming along very fast. We have autopilots in planes now, and there are developments of of pilotless airplanes out there. I just read something from Ryanair where they said they actually have the technology, but the public really is doesn't feel comfortable with it. Do you think we're getting close because of this pilot shortage to having automated planes with maybe a single pilot on board just in case? Is that coming? I mean, what are you hearing about that? Listen, I, I, I think they're right that the public is not ready for it. The technology, you know, the, the 737-800 has had the technology of auto land forever. Um, you can fly a Cirrus jet, the vision jet, which has a emergency button on the top. If the pilot falls, slumps over, or has an issue, you can push a button and the plane will start uh, analyzing what's the closest aircraft. It'll start uh, broadcasting an alert that there is no pilot on this plane, that something's happened, and it will take the plane and land it. Um, the technology is there, but I don't think the public's going to go for it. I personally wouldn't, but, you know, that's me. I think, um, you know, even driverless cars, as we know, uh, Tesla has done a fantastic job, and I actually have one, and I use remote driving, but um, there's been a lot of other problems where it has not worked out, which is why you still need to stay engaged. I think the best case scenario for the airlines, and it probably won't be for another decade, is that they bring it down to one pilot and with full automation. But I, I, I still think, particularly on international flights, I would want to be over the ocean with nobody up front. Would you? <laughs> no, that'd be terrifying. <laughs> I mean, could you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about movies and everything else I've seen. But, but you know, you want somebody up there. Uh, so you have students who come to your flight academy. You talked about uh, a high school, you know, in California where the planes are going overhead, and you go and talk to them. But how else do people find out about things like this flight academy? I mean, where when students come to you, where are they saying that they learned about it? Um, again, I, it's a lot of it's word of mouth, but obviously the website, kids are very smart and they spend a lot of time on the internet anyway. So we get a lot of calls, you know, they find, you know, our website again, minoritypilot.org. And, you know, they'll put an application, you know, say, hey, we're interested in learning. Can we get more information? How do we do this? Uh, we also have a flight school down in Temecula, uh, the Flight uh, Venture uh, Aircraft Academy, excuse me. And where we do both roto and fixed wing training for the primary students. Again, Las Vegas Flight Academy is more, again, for the end guys that are already in the airlines or who are getting ready to uh, uh, interview for an airline. They want to get their type rating so they're up there. You also have the foundation, and you, you talked about the hundred thousand to maybe one hundred fifty thousand that would cost to train somebody completely ignorant of flying to to become a, a commercial or airline pilot. About how much do you want the foundation to be able to offset some of that expense, or, or what? What do you think you'll be able to offer? Listen, in a perfect world, like I said, I would prefer that money not be a barrier to entry, and that we could afford to pay a hundred percent of that. Um, as I said, I'm telling a lot of kids today that there's also the option of getting financing for uh, to become a pilot. And it's pretty easy to get uh, because 
the finance companies know that once these kids become pilots, they will automatically have a job. We used to do, or I should say Pan Am uh, used to do in the old days, something called the Avenitio program, which is zero to hero, but for foreign students. And in India, if you said went to a bank and said, hey, I want to become a pilot, there was no qualifying. They would give you the money. That's how much in demand pilots are. Is there an age limit? Um, actually, I think it's, <laughs> you got me, but it, uh, 16 <laughs> to become an airline. 16 years old to become a pilot. I think for the airlines, it may be 21, but I'm not 100% sure. But what if somebody wants to start training, like, say, at 50? Um, believe it or not, you know, 10 years ago, they would have laughed at you. Uh, we had, <laughs> no, seriously, it was like, I, I'm unfortunately at 65, so I can't do it. If I could, I would. Um, but we recently had a pilot come through our program for one of the airlines. I won't mention who it was, um, that was 60 years old. And I was stunned that they were willing to pay for a six year old to get his type rating. Uh, unfortunately he did not make it through. Yeah. Uh, but, pe- yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, part, part of that question, and, and uh, uh, we're going to be talking about this a little bit later is that, you know, the, people are working longer these days. People are living longer. Is there a potential for that to change that age limit? Well, the airlines have been pushing to raise it up to 67. Um, you know, and again, I listen, if you retire at 65 today, most airline pilots that want to keep working instantly get a job in the private sector. You can fly under Part 91 till you're 100, till you die in the airplane, okay? There is no limitation outside of uh, the airlines on how, how long you can fly. And the truth is that there are many pilots. Um, we have uh, some of our instructors that are upwards of 80 years old, and they're still vital. They still know exactly what they're doing. They're still very good. Um, so, you know, I'm not opposed to going to 67, but, again, part of that would be to make sure that they have a very clean medical history and there are no issues there. That's the only question. So, it's not their skills or yeah. their knowledge. So we have this issue of fewer pilots, this huge gap. Are flight schools the only solution, or what are some feasible strategies to solve this? Well, again, I mean, there's no easy way other than you got to actually get in an airplane and start flying. However, having said that, our simulation technology is so advanced that when you're flying in our simulators, in every measurable quantitative measure, you are flying the actual aircraft, the actual 737. Um, the reason I bring that up is I don't know if you guys heard about the F1 uh, a race car driver. It was a kid who used the uh, simulation yeah. of driving that car. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about yeah. that? Yeah, the kid won the race. When he went the first time in the actual car, he won the race. So, and I only bring that up to say that there's a lot of great programs called like Microsoft Flight that you can learn a lot about flying. Um in, including airliners, uh, and be really well prepared. When I started flying, I was 14 years old, and I and I used to love the old war movies. And I, again, I'm old, so you know we're talking like the Flying Tigers with John Wayne. You know those movies? Yeah. 
in those movies, they actually taught you how to fly. The guy would go, hey, yeah, well, this is a stick and it controls <laughs> the roll and you pull up and down, control pitch and the, the rudder controls yaw. So I used to fly in the back of my parents' car. We we're driving through the canyons. I'd be mimicking like I'm flying. You know, I'd pull back or going uphill, push down, going down, roll the right and left. So when I was 14, I went to school. I was the second kid to solo. And that was because I really felt comfortable that I already knew. I All the stuff they taught me, I kind of already knew. And then when I did go solo, <laughs> I disappeared for two and a half hours on my first solo flight. And I went and got my A, B, and C badge. That meant that I flew, I, I went 10,000 feet above my initial release. I was up in the air for over an hour, and I quite frankly can't remember the third one. But when I came back, I'm pretty sure there were some fairly nervous uh, um, instructors, but I did show up. My point is, is that there are a lot of uh, things that kids can learn. And if they already have an interest in aviation, I will wait to you. They're already trying to figure it out, even if they believe that's something they could never do. And that's Ron Kelly. Ron is the CEO of the Las Vegas Flight Academy, founder of the Minority Pilot Advancement Foundation. Ron, thank you so much. Again, thank you. And remember, folks, please go to www.minoritypilot.org. We greatly appreciate your support. And we are not done talking about this. Coming up, Daniel Bubb is a former airline pilot, faculty in residence, and associate professor at UNLV. He's going to talk about the potential impact of this pilot shortage on Las Vegas and, and, and what it could do here. That's coming up in just a few minutes. This is State of Nevada. Support for Nevada Public Radio comes from Comprehensive Cancer Centers, providing care in our community for more than 40 years. The multi-specialty team offers the latest treatments and services to patients with cancer, blood disorders, breast health conditions, and pulmonary disease. CCCNevada.com. I'm Scott Tong. In states that ban abortion, birth rates are up. But many of those states have also cut their safety net programs. One family story in Tennessee shows how these policies actually play out for people struggling to get by. The year after an abortion denied. Next time here and now. This morning at 10 on KNPR. Yeah, the Batmobile was really cool, but really? It never got good gas mileage, it was cramped, not very reliable, and the insurance, only a billionaire could afford to own it. If you've got a vehicle from earlier in your life, and you're not a billionaire, but you're thinking ahead to what's next, think about donating your old vehicle to Nevada Public Radio. Running or not, we'll come get it, handle paperwork, auction it, and put the proceeds to work as your NPR station. Learn more at knpr.org. Support for Nevada Public Radio comes from the Nevada State Museum in Las Vegas, presenting the fabulous life of Liberace through its costumes, ephemera, and photos. Liberace, Real and Beyond, is on display through April 29th. Information about planning visits at lasvegasnvmuseum.org.
And we're back from Nevada Public Radio. I'm Joe Shaneman, the state of Nevada. 17,000 pilots. That's an estimate of how many pilots in this country we are currently short for commercial and airline flights. The gap's expected to grow to 24,000 by 2032. And for a city like Las Vegas, where Reed International is one of the top 10 destinations in the world, those shortages are pretty important. Our guests today are talking about that shortage. And if you have a question or a comment, call 702-258-3552 or email son at knpr.org. Daniel Bubb is a former airline pilot, faculty in residence and associate professor and coordinator of academic affairs in UNLV's Honors College. He's working on his second book, looking at the roles that airlines and airports play in connecting Western American cities with the rest of the world. And we talked to him earlier this week. So, Professor Bub, you know, as somebody who's studied aviation and aviation history, how new is this airline staffing shortage? Is this always been a part of the industry or is this fairly recent? So, um, to, to answer your question, Joe, historically it's been cyclical with pilots. Um, we've always had hiring waves where the airlines really desperately need pilots and then they interview a whole bunch, they hire a whole bunch and then the window kind of closes and it opens again. But I think what's a little bit unique with the situation today is prior to COVID-19, we did have a pilot shortage. And then of course, when COVID-19 happened, airlines offered early buyout for uh, many pilots who were pushing retirement, which is the retirement age according to the FAA 65. And so that really kind of exacerbated the problem. And so now they're trying to really catch up uh, to try to meet the needs of uh, passenger uh, air travel. You know, we talked earlier with the Las Vegas Flight Academy. How important are flight schools, uh, things like that, to to alleviating the shortage? Flight, Flight schools serve a very valuable purpose. But I think the thing you have to keep in mind is pilots have to build hours. And so you can go through the schools and get all your licenses and ratings, but you ultimately, if you're going to fly for the airlines, you have to have a minimum of 1,500 hours. And it takes a long time to build that flight time. The way I did it, the way a lot of other pilots did it, is we were flight instructors. And so we basically taught around the clock Mm -hmm. trying to build hours. Um, Some people might fly cargo. You know, they might fly bank checks, for example. And perhaps, you know, one of the most common ones is people who fly in the military. Airlines really hire a lot of pilots out of the military, so they build their flight time that way. But I I think the thing that's important to keep in mind is, yes, while it's good to try to get as many licenses and ratings as you can, you still have to build your hours to hit 1,500 hours minimum. I've also been reading that the number of pilots coming out of the military is decreasing. Why would that be? Uh, Because the military is trying to keep them. So the military is trying to compete with the airlines in paying their pilots to try to keep them. So this is a little bit of a new avenue for us that we haven't seen so much in the past, where it was quite common for military pilots to be hired on by the airlines, but the military is trying to keep their pilots, so they're trying to pay them competitive salaries. So we have kind of like dual competing scenarios here. And those pilots are pretty young. And I wonder, as a college professor, does it seem like young people that you talk to, because I'm sure you talked about your history in your classes, do they have any interest in becoming pilots? Some do. I I think they're still trying to figure out, you know, what it's like to be a pilot, trying to figure out, you know, how long is it going to take? How much money is it going to cost? I'll tell you, Joe, when I wanted to become a pilot and I was in high school, 
I talked to anybody who had a relative who was an airline pilot because I wanted to know what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what's the best way, you know, to get into flying for the airlines. How much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take me? Where should I go to school? Uh, you know, I wanted to fly in the military when I got out of high school, but because I wore glasses and I still wear glasses, uh, they, they wouldn't let you fly. They wanted to make me a boom operator, which is exciting, but I really wanted to fly the plane. So that's when I decided to go the civilian route and be a flight instructor. Is that still the case? If people have, you know, eyes that aren't just perfect, they can't be military pilots? Uh, you, you can, as long as you have corrective lenses. It's the same thing for the airlines. Um, the FAA will actually put on your medical uh, must-wear corrective lenses. It, it's also something you might, that might see, you might see on a, on a driver's license. Yeah. You know, must-wear corrective lenses. Yeah. And you mentioned mandatory retirement age. Is that something that might go away because people are living longer? We are seeing people these days working into their, well into their 70s uh, because the, the, the system just isn't really set up to support that many people with retirement. So is that, is there potential for that to change? So there actually has been a lot of attention on this recently with Congress, uh, where members of Congress, particularly the U.S. Senate, were trying to uh, get the FAA to raise the retirement age to 67. But very recently, a decision was handed down that, no, it's going to stay at 65. So, and this is because, again, the airlines are trying to beef up their staff. Uh, while you have all these pilots who are in ground school, and the thing I think also it's important to keep in mind is it takes a while to train a pilot. You know, it takes a while for them to become really seasoned. Just because they come out of ground school doesn't mean, you know, they're really ready to go to fly a 767. I mean, they, they are trained to safely fly the plane, but it takes a few years for those pilots to really become seasoned. And so what's happening is while airlines are scrambling and they're trying to fill all their classes, which they're doing, what, what do you do with the people who are on your flight line? If you have, you know, captains who are pushing 65 who are going to be retiring pretty soon, that's going to create a problem for your airline. So airline executives, you know, members of the U.S. Senate really were trying to push the FAA to increase the age to 67, but the FAA said no and made the decision to keep it at 65. Uh, the flight attendant side, just a few weeks ago, crews from Alaskan, United, American, and Southwest Airlines authorized a strike for higher pay, better working conditions. That's on the crew side, but I wonder if that impacts the experience of a pilot. Could it maybe be something that could dissuade them from wanting to keep going or to retire early or even dissuade those who are thinking about becoming a pilot? It, it, it could. Um, I, I mean, to my notion, you know, flight crews kind of stick together. Pilots try to support flight attendants because you really do have to work together as a team. That, that's what it's about at the end of the day. You, you might get some pilots who will complain, you know, that the flight attendants want too much. But from my experience, most pilots I know support flight attendants because, like I said, you have to work as a as kind of a, a well-oiled team, right? Yeah. And so you're going to support them, especially given the you know the tough working conditions. Unfortunately, we're starting to see more combative passengers now. That's a problem. Um, you know, when the plane's sitting at the gate and the door is open, the flight attendants actually are not getting paid. They really don't get paid until the door closes and you start turning on the jet engines. <laughs> so there, there's some good reason there for flight attendants to be, you know, asking for a better contract, better salary, given the increasingly challenging working conditions. So I, I don't really see pilots as, uh, you know, an impediment 
to trying to improve those contracts. Yeah. You know, you write about the history of the airline industry, especially as it pertains to the West. We live in Las Vegas. How important is this issue of the pilot shortage to Las Vegas? It's it's very important because we're what we call a high volume, low yield uh, market, meaning that we have a very high volume of planes that fly to and from Harry Reid Airport, but the airlines are not going to make a ton of money off of it. Uh, usually where they're going to make their money is like transcontinental flights, international flights. But because so many people like to come to Las Vegas, you know, we have package deals, which have been popular for decades and attracted lots and lots of people. So the demand is here and that's great. But yes, we need the pilots. We need the rest of the flight crews. We need the planes to be able to bring people here. And so I think it has a significant bearing on Las Vegas. Uh, particularly because a little over 50% of all the people who come to Las Vegas come here by plane. And especially if we have, you know, future events like Formula One and the Super Bowl, where they're trying to really make Las Vegas into a sports and entertainment center, you know, with all all the concerts that we have. Air, air travel is going to remain in very high demand, and we need to be ready for it. You know, I mentioned earlier that the shortage is estimated to be about 17,000 now, that it yeah. could grow to 24,000 by 2026. Do you sure. think this is something they'll ever catch up to? Uh, I, I think they will, but it's going to take time. Because like I said, you know, pilots go through very rigorous training in ground school, but to really become seasoned uh, takes a few years. And so it's going to be, I, I think it can be done, but it's, it's going to take some time to answer your question. Um, and, and even then, you know, pilots, you know, we're, we're fortunate. We have some of the best pilots in the world flying our passenger planes. And they're held to very rigorous standards. They're, they're held to very rigorous standards when they go back for recurrent training, which mm-hmm. they have to do. Uh, so I, I think we'll get there, but it's, it's just going to take time, Joe. All right. Professor Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking with you. And that was UNLV Associate Professor Daniel Bubb. Now with us, Captain Kurt Hansen. He's a pilot for Allegiant Air. He's also on the executive board of Teamsters Local 2118. Kurt, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you here. What do you make of the pilot shortage? I, I mean, are we overblowing it, or, or have you seen this firsthand? Well, I would say that, first of all, my perspective on the pilot charge is really shaped in, in two ways. First is as an average pilot who has concerns for the health of the industry and my company and my career path. But secondly, as a union representative that's involved in contract negotiations to try to realize an agreement with management that really recognizes and fairly compensates our pilot group and which in turn will hopefully help us and attract and retain pilots. Okay. So do you think overall that this shortage of pilots will impact travelers or or put another way, if there were more pilots, would there be more flights available to travelers? I I think we're going to see a a path forward here. And if we look at what's really happening at other major airlines in the United States, what we can see is that those airlines which have chosen to, to ratify agreements with their pilot groups are, are having far less difficulty finding and hiring qualified pilots. If, you know, if, if you listen to uh, quotes by Ed Bastian at Delta, Gary Kelly at Southwest, or Robert Isom at American, they've all publicly stated now that they aren't having difficulty finding and retaining qualified pilots. 
And even CEOs of smaller carriers, such as Jude Bricker at Sun Country, have stated that, that since they've ratified their new contract with their pilot group, they haven't had issues uh, with retention or hiring pilots. So I, I find that to be a, a major piece in this. I think that we still ha will have to draw from the bottom up, and there'll have to be a lot of work on the part of, of, of flight schools and attracting pilots to the industry. But I think there is a solution here. I wonder for you as as a pilot to who uh, you, you know who's been piloting commercially since the COVID pandemic. We talked earlier about how the pandemic really impacted the number of pilots. So there were early retirements. Airlines needed fewer pilots at the time because there was there was less flight, less uh, flying being done by the public. How has that impacted things here? Well, what we saw and this is sort of mentioned earlier as well is is that uh, due to the pandemic, um, there was a, a sort of a great fear that spread throughout the industry. And there was an overreaction, I would call it, by, by many uh, airline managers out there that, that sought to lighten their balance sheets and offer early retirements to, to pilots. And, and with that deepening crisis, uh, they didn't see that demand would return to the industry as quick, but as we all know, uh, that it did return and uh, very quickly, and that put uh, many airlines in a precarious situation where they were um, they were seeking to to fill those seats and to get uh, pilots back to fill the need of the traveling public. You know, it's interesting. You're in this um, these negotiations with Allegiant Air. In 2022, Allegiant Air wrote about some of the issues that we've already talked about that have led to the pilot shortage. But it added this: the lack of a new collective bargaining agreement with our pilots' union could also contribute to attrition and serve as an impediment to our being able to hire and maintain sufficient numbers of pilots. So it sounds, at least in that statement, like they're pretty empathetic to the issue. But I wonder if you have seen as well that that kind of thing is affecting your fellow pilots. I would completely agree. That the short answer is that, that Allegiant does have a retention and recruiting problem. And although management has acknowledged that they see that as, as an issue, we, we really aren't seeing the progress that we would expect to go along with that statement at the negotiating table. And I wonder what the status is now of the negotiations with the Legion. Like, wh where are you at right now? Well, I would say that we're approximately 60% done with, with our, our contract in that. There's still some very major pieces that, that need to be worked on. A lot of the meat and potatoes, the, the pay, the retirement, uh, certain other benefits that the pilots really want to see. Um, and, and we're hoping that that will come faster towards the end once a lot of the, the other pieces have, have fallen into place. But, but at the moment, it, it's still uh, too slow of a process for our entire pilot group. And some have said part of the reason it is so slow is because of the Railway Labor Act. And that gives transportation companies almost unlimited authority to drag out labor negotiations. It also forbids workers to strike. I wonder if that's impacted your strategies or how you have tried to move ahead with these negotiations or with protests. It's, it, it definitely has. And the Railway Labor Act is, is something that, that all airlines uh, really have to, to deal with being under. We've been lumped in with, uh, with railways uh, as, as, and so we're governed under that, that RLA and how we, how we uh, negotiate. Um, and so we've been, we've been forced to, to sort of go along with, with that process. 
uh, as best as we can. Um, it's something that's that's frustrating, but it's something that we in the industry are um, uh, have tried to get used to. Um, so uh, we we try to get out and, and raise public awareness. We've we've attempted to to make it known to the public that we're unhappy with uh, with the pace of negotiations and and. And uh, we recently had a, a campaign in Las Vegas to that extent. Yeah. You know, and uh, we talked about pilot wages earlier. And uh, I know a few pilots in Las Vegas. I'm talking about like 10 years ago, they were talking about how the wages weren't keeping up. Are they lower than in years past or have they kept up in, with inflation? Uh, talk a little bit about what you're seeing. Well, what I would say is that the Allegiant pilots are approximately uh, 50% behind the industry when it comes to compensation. Wow. And, uh, you know, we're, we're struggling for parity with our peers is one of the things we, we like to say. We work for an ultra-low-cost carrier, but we, we simply aren't interested in being ultra-low-cost pilots. So um, it, it's been a, it has been a struggle over the years. Um, our previous contract uh, was signed in, in 2016, the term of that contract was five years. And so for many of our pilots, they haven't seen a pay raise at all in more than three years. I wonder, you know, as a pilot, Kurt, if if that impacts morale and if it does, you know, the flying public wonders if your morale isn't as, I guess, isn't where it should be, if that could impact how you pilot a plane, you know, give me your thoughts on that. Well, I, I would say there is an impact to morale, but I would also caveat that that we are all professions, and yeah. we know how many individuals are in the back of the plane, um, and and those 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 individuals are, are mothers and fathers and, and children, and many of the times uh, we ourselves are transporting our our own families. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of of taking my own family to to Florida recently, and um, I I. Uh, had my son with me, who's three years old at the time, and and I, I grabbed him in my arms and I made my announcement in front of the passengers hmm. and said, "You, know, we often say that that we will treat this flight as if our our family is on board, and uh, today my family is on board with all of you, and and that really is I know the mindset of of all of our pilots uh, out there when we operate a flight. It, it's a there's there's frustration. We all wish." We could be compensated fairly, but uh, our promise to you, the traveling public, is that that we will treat every single flight as if our family was in the back. Now, I don't want you to reveal, you know, everything in these negotiations, but I wonder during negotiations if the airline says it's hurting economically. Is that why there's this fight over wages? Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily true with Allegiant. I mean, every airline has its its struggles. But Allegiant is is one of the uh, most profitable airlines in the world. They they do obviously have to make decisions that are that are based on 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 financial aspects, and that's part of what we that we work back and forth across the negotiation table. We're we're looking at you know we we both have analysts. We we employ uh, analysts to 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 look at the financial data of the of the company and to make sure that we're not asking for something that would be detrimental to, to the airline. You know, the, the saying goes, no one's looking to strangle the golden goose. 
Right. You know, over the Super Bowl weekend, Las Vegas saw a message in the sky above the strip that read, Allegiant Pilot Contract Now. And this is a message for residents, but also it's a message to the company. And at the same time, Allegiant this week announced another partnership with the university, Liberty University, where it said it will help pay off the debt of student pilots up to $50,000. It's a feel-good move, but I wonder how it makes you as a veteran pilot think. Well, I, I'm understanding that the airline has to do what it needs to do to to, to, to staff um, its its aircraft and, and fly its routes. That's, that's understandable. Um, but we truly believe that that in order to get the best and most qualified pilots and to attract individuals that will that will remain at the airline for their entire career, what we need to do is to 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 fairly compensate pilots to, to have an industry standard contract. And that way we will attract the best and the brightest pilots to the airline. What do you think is the consequence if you don't get this new contract and soon? I think that the ultimate consequence is we will have high amounts of, of turnover. We'll have a lot of pilots that are seeking other opportunities with, with a lot of uh, major carriers in the United States hiring. Um, it becomes quite attractive to, to leave, frankly, and go somewhere else. Before we go, I want to get to this idea that I talked a bit earlier with Ron Kelly about, and that is pilotless planes. Simpleflying.com says airplane manufacturers are already planning to build single pilot airliners, and they're probably paying big attention to this. Pilotless planes could save airlines $35 billion a year. Ryanair of Ireland has said the technology now exists, but getting the public and regulators to accept it is a challenge. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I do believe it's something that is inevitable. I'm, I'm hoping it's not in, in my lifetime. Um, but it, it may be, um, I, you know, when I have a, a nephew who is very interested in aviation himself, and, uh, when I've spoken to him about, uh, this potential career choice, I've said, you know, you can make this choice, but it's advantageous to have a backup plan because uh, as some of your other guests have said, the airline industry is cyclical. Some of those things we can predict others we can't predict. This is something that we should be able to predict and uh, and to know. We don't know the exact time frame of when it will happen, but as you mentioned, there there are airlines out there. Excuse me, um, aircraft manufacturers out there right now that are that are testing these these platforms that are attempting to to build them uh, because of the demand uh, that's that's being uh, expressed by the airlines themselves. And so I, I do believe it will happen. The, the question is just when it will happen. Um, there's right. a there's, there's an old joke in the industry uh, that, that says the future of, of aviation. Hey, Kurt, I'm going to have to end it there. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Kurt, Captain Kurt Hansen, Ron Kelly, and Daniel Bubb.